parents really need to view themselves as the primary educator of your kid. And you hold so much authority as that first learning, like you're the one that's instilling all of those foundational blocks in 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 their what they're learning, but in in how they learn too. And I think over time, families have given they've given that away. And in giving that away, it's caused a tremendous burden on our educational system to meet all of these needs that they were never intended to meet. You're listening to Thinking Well, a home for conversations about faith, life, and culture. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Thinking Well. Um, Today, we are going to be talking about education, and it's a bit of a two-part episode. Part one is going to be on education today and school options for the future. And part two is going to be a little bit more of a freewheeling conversation about school boards and teachers and parents and the politics of education in 2023. But in part one, we have a special guest. It is Casey Peters, and she is an educator. And so she's our our expert, and we're going to be asking her a lot of questions about things that are really going on in schools, not just what we're seeing on social media and things like that. But before we get started, we should probably go around the room. And what we're going to be doing is, is I would love for you to be able to introduce yourself and then, as you do, offer a particular uh, memorable situation from school that you, that you recall. Um, something amazing that happened to you in school, uh, an amazing teacher or something, or perhaps something that was um, an embarrassing moment. So um, our guest, Casey, why don't you go first? Sure. Thanks for having me on this episode. Um, so I'll start with my memory of education. Um, I, in high school diverted from my course of going to school to be an educator and thought I'm going into the medical field. And so that's all of my focus was on that. And I was a senior in my honors anatomy class and I was helping, you know, the group. Um, We were just, I think we were working on a dissection. I was helping my group and, and my teacher pulled me aside and said, I actually think you're supposed to be a teacher. And it kind of threw me for a minute because I was doing so well in that class. And she said, like, man, you're so good at this stuff. But then she changed her mind and said, no, I actually think you should be a teacher. So I reevaluated and got into Northwestern, and that set my trajectory to go into education. So, And was that a happy, happy choice for you? Yeah, I think I knew in my heart all the time I'd wanted to be a teacher from the time I was really little. And so, um, yeah, it just, yeah, life just, you know how sometimes you question your gut on things and you probably never should, but you do. And so, yeah, it was good. Set me back. 
Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I think you should tell people about what you wanted to be in kindergarten and who your kindergarten teacher was. Uh, this would be your husband, Dan, <laughs> yes, this is, asking this, that question. Yes, yeah. Casey is my wife. <laughs> yeah. Dan Peters, Casey Peters. So. Um, it actually wasn't my kindergarten teacher. Oh, sorry. Um, that's okay. And my first grade teacher, I adored her. Um, she, if she would have a substitute for the day, I literally could make myself physically ill to go home so that I didn't have to be there if she wasn't there. Um, and I just loved her and I just wanted to be just like her. And her name was Mrs. Peters. She was my first grade teacher. And so it was just kind of funny that, you know, through the course of life, I ended up marrying a Peters and becoming actually Mrs. Peters. So. Wait, was it just because of that that you married me? No, it's not. (laughs) But like that helped. I think I heard. It really did help because, you know, as a teacher, you got to be careful about who you marry because you don't want to end up with a bad last name. (laughs) (laughs) My kindergarten teacher was Mrs. Hammermeister. (laughs) So I get that. (laughs) Uh, Dan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and your memory from, from school? Yep, um, I'm Dan Peters. I'm married to Casey Peters, who's our guest today. Okay, my memory that stands out from school, um, and this is embarrassing, and um, don't judge me. You're going to judge me anyway, so whatever. Um, I am not the most athletic type, and I never have been in school. All the boys are just, like, stronger, faster, whatever. Anyway, during FIED, we were doing some just, like... I think we were doing high jump and um so everyone's running up and clearing the bar and I just could not get it there's a few other kids that couldn't get it either so there was a girl in our class and um she was a little heavier and so (laughs) she's running up to do the high jump and um I don't know why I did this because I was like the perfect kid in school like never acted out never did anything like Teachers had just glowing things to say about me. And so I'm feeling a little insecure in my athletic abilities. And I think, like, all I could do is think just to put someone else down. And so this girl is running up, and out of my mouth comes the phrase, um, Don't break the mattress. <laughs> yeah. Don't break the mattress, Olivia. And and she didn't <laughs> she didn't keep going. She she kind of slowed down and stopped. And my teacher looked at me like, "What the heck, dude? <laughs> what was that?" Because oh I never God. say anything, anything like I never put anyone else down. And so this girl just starts bawling, and then I start bawling because oh. I'm like, "What the heck just happened?" My teacher's chewing me out. And so Olivia, wherever you are in life, I am truly oh sorry because that is not me. Uh, I know it's not fun. It's not funny for her. I, I, That's right. These are funny. tears of, yes. of, of yeah. sympathy right it's now. It's funny looking back on it that I even had the ability for that to come out of my mouth. I think, <laughs> I think if there is a funny aspect to that story... Dan has said, that's just not who you are. No, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm just shocked. I oh, cannot my. imagine you saying that yeah. at all. But I appreciate the aspect of the, you know, you were feeling pressure and it was, you know, about your own abilities and so on. And I think that was really um, transparent of you. Uh, Rachel, how about you? Well, <clears throat> being homeschooled, uh, my favorite memory is my siblings 
and I sitting around in a circle singing Kumbaya. No, that didn't happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> my favorite memories, actually, of school are I did school on the road. Like we went on vacation and we'd be doing school. We'd be seeing different sites and doing school. That was my favorite. It's great. That's really awesome. Uh, for me, uh, it was also a, an athletic event. Um, I was talking about this with Dan uh, the other night that I had, um, it was in fourth grade and we were having races. It was at the end of the school year, kind of like it's the last day of school. And so there's really no school. It's just play and things like that. And they had races and you could sign up for it. And I signed up to, to run and I'm in fourth grade. And I think we're all about, you know, the same amount of coordination and so on, just about to that point, there's not a huge difference in skill levels that any of us were aware of. And so I joined the race and out of about six people, I came in third or fourth and a girl who I was trying to impress and her name is Margaret. Uh, she uh, came up to me afterwards and she said, well, you're, you're not fast. And it was an interesting moment for me because it was the first time I'd ever given any thought to being not being the best or the fastest or whatever. In my brain, I was the fastest kid. I was the strongest kid right until that moment in time. And everything went downhill after that. My story. Wow. So anyway, now it's really quiet in the room. <laughs> well, I just thought that was interesting because uh, as, it, as it relates to um, how we uh, move on from our lives, for yeah. moments like that, sometimes that has a huge impact on on uh, how we see ourselves, you know, in moments like that, and it all started in school. Now, I think about that, and that was 55 years ago, something like that, mm -hmm. when that happened, and we didn't have social media, and we didn't have all the things that were going on that kids are all embarked in, in in school now on top of that. So that embarrassing moment between me and that young lady and the way it made me think about my future, um, that was one thing, but what would that have been like today? Or what's that like for kids today? And I wonder, I suppose our educator guests can give us some insights on that as we move forward. But, you know, I, I'm just not really sure how difficult it is in school, both for teachers and for students. So can we get started? Is that all right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so, um, Casey, uh, we've got some questions for you, and I suppose we're going to be going around the room a little bit, but can you first of all tell us a little bit about yourself? We understand how you became a teacher, but maybe um, uh, what brings you to our table today? Sure. I'll just give you a little bit of my educational background. So um, my undergrad was at Northwestern at the time, Northwestern College, now it's Northwestern University in St. Paul. Um, and... That I had attended public school my entire life, so um, K-12 was um, through the Elk River system. I graduated from the Elk River High School. And going into Northwestern, a private college university, was kind of a culture shock for me in kind of the other way. Like, um, it was really my first interaction with primary homeschooled children, um, and really, at, I mean, that was a long time ago, back in 2000, so um, 23 years ago, that um, I got experience with kids from all over the nation, really, at a university campus. And so um, that shifted um, my life in a lot of different ways, just meeting different people and um, realizing that everybody doesn't come from a, from a rural 
public high school. So, um, and then I went into teaching right after that. Um, I got a job right after graduation, um, working at a private school. And so I've had um, just a semester. I worked at in a private school, and then my goal was to. I'm on. I'm going to go right back into Elk River. I, that's where I went to school. I know it. Um, and so I did. I subbed for a year, which was a good experience, just to have vast um, experiences and lots of different grades and lots of different school systems. Uh, and then I did end up landing a job in Elk River, and I thought, this is it. Like I'm going to be here. This is. I'm going to just work this till I retire. And God had other plans. So I got to teach in Elk River for three years and. If we know, if you know anything about public school systems, they have a tenure um, through the the unions where you work three probationary years, and that fourth contract is your tenure contract, which essentially is like you've done, you've showed us that you can make it, and we're just promising to keep you on. Like there's, it's harder to get rid of a teacher that is um, a tenured teacher, and so. Um, I got to that third year, went in for what I thought was my, here's your contract, basically your life contract. You're going to just live your life here. And um, it was a contract negotiation year, and they cut 65 teachers across the district that were in that, that they were waiting for their fourth contract. And basically, I got pink slipped. And the principal said, like, there's just nothing I can do to save you. Like, the district's just not hiring anybody that's at this point. So the union called a meeting between the 65 of us, and they basically just said, like, since none of you are tenured yet, there isn't anything we can do to save you. And the district has said, like, they're not ever going to hire you again. So that kind of shook my world. I was like, well, now what do I do? And so then um, I got the opportunity to uh, move into the charter world. So that's where I've been living since um, that time. Um, I landed a kindergarten job in a charter school, and I've been in charter ever since. And so, but amongst that, um, we've also homeschooled our oldest daughter for four years. So I have experience with pretty much every form of education. <laughs> um, That's fantastic. Yeah. So so can you explain a little bit more? And I never want to put you in a box and you can just say, uh, yeah, I really can't go into that and that's fine. But so were there 65 job openings after that or were they actually cutting because the students, there weren't as many students or what, what made it so that 65 teachers just went away? Yeah, they actually ended up rehiring most of those positions. Um, for the particular position I was in, they put an incumbency on that position, meaning it's kind of a flex position based on their numbers of incoming enrollment. And I think they did that with a lot of those jobs. Um, a tenured teacher can't hold an incumbent job because they might not have a space for them. And so that was the legal way that they were able to um, make that happen. Um but, yeah, they ended up rehiring most of those positions the following year with most were new, fresh out of school teachers. Well, the, I'll leave it there for right now, but I have to tell you, I don't understand that. I, I don't understand that process exactly or you know where unions come in or how they're helpful or not. But 
but I'm not going to push any buttons there. Yeah. Um, can I can I say this? Do you miss it? Like, was that was that a path that you wish you had been able to keep on? Um, not necessarily. I don't think I would be where I'm at today, or um, have the influence that I do um, if I was just there. Because I think I would have just settled into a teaching position and just just live there. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about this too about funding and money, but I mean. For the fact that I would be making a ton more money there, that part of it is like, hmm, but people don't go into teaching for money. Don't haven't you heard that? Yeah. So <laughs> I have heard that. Yeah. So I don't know why we cling to that so hardly, but we do. We just, yeah, not here for the money. So um, can you? I think you've given us a little bit of feedback uh, on this, but the difference, the biggest difference that you've noticed between public and private and charter and homeschooling. What would you say the biggest differences are and what are the biggest benefits of each? Sure. So I would kind of split it into two sections, um, public and charter in one house, and the other would be um, private and homeschool. They're very similar in the fact that um, public schools and charter schools are state and federally funded. Their funding is a little bit different in the fact that a charter school cannot um, bond or levy money. And so they're basically restricted to funds that are per pupil. So they're only getting the money with butts in the seat. So if there's a kid there, they're getting that money for that kid. There's no extra coming in unless they're writing grants or fundraising, things like that. Where a big district can, um, they have all sorts of other additional revenues from, from taxes and levies and that so um but other than that they're they're very similar in um what their the state expects from them so they are they have to hold to the minnesota state standards um most of the state statutes that um, are for education apply to charters there are a few that still don't um, and that was a change probably 12 to 13 years ago now. Originally, when charters started, they were supposed to have more autonomy and not um, have to abide by all of the statutes that a public school does. And so they had a lot more choice in the way that they educated. And just as time went on, the state put more and more constraints on on charter and expectations for them to follow um, where does that come from, or what what would be the the rationale for it? It sounds like they're just trying to make charter schools more like public schools. I don't necessarily know if that was the extent behind it, but it it always ties back to money, and mm-hmm. so it's like if we are giving you the money, then we need to have these assurances, right. yeah. and so, um, you know, we're going to give you this, then this is what you need to do for us, and so. So really, over time, charter schools have become more and more like public district schools, just without the money. They do the same amount of stuff, just with less money. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I mean, there are a few things. I mean, every charter school holds its own board, so they have their own governing power right in their building, and it's usually built up of their teachers and their parents. And so there's a lot more local decisions that are made that are actually people that are walking in the building or have a good vested interest in that school. 
So then the other side is um, private and um, homeschool. And they're very similar in the fact that um, they don't have a lot of regulation. Um, there is very little option for funding, but there is some. So um, private schools can vie into um, having like a nutrition program where the state would help um, fund their lunch program for free and reduced lunch and things like that, just like a public or a charter. Um, they also can um, have a little bit of a, I don't think this is the right term for it, but like a tuition benefit where some of their books, as long as they are non-secretarian books, the, the public school can give funds to a private school um, for some of those purchases um, if that student resided in that, that district. So if I sent my kid to a private school and we lived in Elk River, that's where our thing was, my, my private school could send paperwork to Elk River and say, this student is in our school and we would like you know these funds distributed for this curriculum. Um, and then, then there's ways that they can get money. They can also get transportation money. So if you had like a private school that wanted to run a busing system, there's a little kickback from the state to provide. As long mm. as it was equitable to all students, there's a little bit of kickback there that they can get. Um, same with if you're homeschooling, you can um, put in paperwork and um, have the district reimburse you for some educational costs um, every year. And then the reporting is just a little bit different. Um, you just need to, in the state of Minnesota, it's, and these laws are different for every state, so I'm just specifically speaking to Minnesota, uh, you just basically need to let your home district know that you're homeschooling. And um, in doing that, it's just a simple paperwork, and then you need to choose a test that the district recognizes as as like a standardized normed test that you give your homeschooler every year and then those re reports are supposed to go to the district um, just so that they're making sure that your kid is is making educational gains. Um, you can also take part in a few, um, as a homeschooler, you can take part in some part-time classes at your district. So like if you wanted to send them for gym or art or, or things. So there is some crossover there. I'm trying to think if there's anything Oh, private schools can be um, accredited or non-accredited, and there are more than 50 places in the state of Minnesota that can accredit your private school. And basically having an accreditation means that you don't have to do as much paperwork filing with the district or that you have to report your um, testing scores to them, to the, to the actual home district, because your accreditation person or company that accredits you, they're the ones that are supposed to keep track of the growth of your students. So would you, you probably already said it, but are you, are you private school or are you charter? I'm a charter school. I currently work in a charter school. So. And what was your title again? My official title is curriculum instruction and assessment. So I do, um, I'm in charge of all the curriculum K-12 um, and then I also do all of the professional development for our teachers, not like giving them professional development, but like planning it and having in 
um, people that are experts in their content. And then I also am in charge of all of our testing. So um, I do all the state standard testing, the MCAs. And then we do, um, currently we test NWEA, which is a nationally normed test as well. So um, I came with, uh, you know, several hundred questions, but now I'm getting even more questions. But I, I, but there's other people in the room. Do you have any questions uh, right now for Casey? Uh, no, not so far. It's very interesting. It is I'm really interesting. I'm learning a lot, too. Uh, how about you? No, just that I wish when um, I was homeschooling, because we homeschooled for a little bit, you know, like I said before, I was not athletic. I wish we could have taken part of some of taking advantage of some of the athletic programs for our kids because <laughs> they lacked in that area when I was responsible for homeschooling. Yeah, and <laughs> and that was actually was a saving grace for us because, um, you know, Josiah, for example, homeschooled for five, five or more years and he was involved. You know, there'd be that time of the day where he would go to school and be involved with their, their, their track or soccer or football and things like that. I mean, it's usually at the end of the day, but um, but it, you know that is that is kind of a cool thing. So one of your your expertise is curriculums. Mm -hmm. So I would love for you to share with us your thoughts on the curriculum debate today. Is is it? Uh, um, there's a whole lot of talk out there about. Uh, a lot of parents are frightened about what's in the schools, um, what's kind of um, uh, quietly sneaking in the door, so to speak. Um, is that is that your experience? Do you think that parents have something to be worried about? I'm not going to speak a lot about that, but um, I'm just going to give parents this one tip. There is a beautiful Minnesota state statute. I'm not sure the number on it. You could contact me if you need it. Um, that gives parents the option to opt out of any curriculum. So, and actually, you can opt out of any course that um, is offered to your students. So even if you're in a public school or in a public charter school, you do have the option and the power as a parent to um, navigate through what's coming before your kids. And so my greatest advice would be scour, like when they get to the middle school, high school level, um, Scour their syllabi because that's where you should find what's going to go before your kids. You'll find the textbook title and the publisher. And then do your homework on what is going to be set before your kids. I, um, I mean, you can find anything out there. So if the goal of the district is to... Um, find something that leans left or right, you'll be able to find it. Right. Um, I would say that a good school will always choose something that gives both perspectives because ultimately that is really what we want our students to, to have a handle of, to be presented with information on both sides and then to take the values that their family has instilled in them and make a determination on what they believe is right. And so that's what makes good citizens, people mm -hmm. that are able to muddle through all of it um, and come out the other side having confidence in what they believe. And so really as parents, it's our job to, to know what's going to go before our kids, um, but then to be doing our due diligence at home to be instilling the values that that we hold strong to as a family. 
And and back to your point of social media, that is a huge part of what our kids are living in now. And um, yeah, it's making the waters muddy. Right. Well, just to just to back up just one second before the social media part. Um, first of all, I appreciate your answer, and I'm, I'm a huge proponent of parents being more involved because I really have always presumed that's the key. Almost any time that you look a little bit more closely at a situation, like if, instead of listening to all the scary stuff, if you actually get involved, you find some of it's scary, but some of it's not. Some of it's just you know anything with a mega megaphone uh, sounds worse than it actually is, but. It's super helpful advice you've just given uh, listeners uh, to know that, well, you can you can opt your kids out of that if you don't want them to be in that class or that situation or that course, whatever it is that you have options. So that's, that's super helpful to know. mentioned MCAs. Yes. So uh, that's something that you, you deal with. Are MCAs an amazing tool or are they like a head scratching? Why are we doing this? That's a two-sided coin too. <laughs> um, there is very valuable information in it, but there are so many factors that go into whether it's a good measure or not. Can I just interject here? Just yeah. for our listeners, can we clear up what MCAs are or is? Yeah, so it's the Minnesota Common Assessment, and it's given each spring to um, Minnesota's students that are in um, charter schools and public schools, and they um, have the option as a as a private school to opt into taking them as well. So that could be a choice that a, a private school decides to do. Can you opt do. out of it? Yep. So anybody can opt out of it. So, um, I, you know, every year there are schools. This is the caveat to an opt-out, and this is where I would like to see um, something changed, is that an opt-out is essentially a fail. So um, even though your kid didn't take it, it still dings as a fail to the district that that student is not meeting any standards. And so it actually works against a school for for students to opt out, which I feel like they should be just disregarded because it wasn't even attempted, but that's a whole nother, a whole nother episode. Um, mm. <laughs> so it gives our teachers good information because it's one measure of many that we use when we look at a student's overall ability and growth. But then um, those tests, they, they do break down by, um, like the math one, are they struggling in algebra? Are they st struggling in geometry? Like what concepts are they having trouble with? And so that information is good for our teachers just to come back and say, like, man, our kids, 
like notoriously our middle schoolers are struggling in the area of vocabulary on their reading tests. Like now what can we do as a team and as a school to build up vocabulary or what can we do to strengthen their geometry skills before, you know, they have to take that test. So can that information be gathered just by looking at their grades? Yes and no, because depending on the courses that they're taking, like a kid could be in algebra and you're not going to necessarily see a measure of their geometry, but you'll notice it on the MCAs. Okay. So content-wise, it it shows you content that they might not be in and where they're, they're struggling. But like I said, it's only one measure of many because you are looking at their grades. And for some kids... To be completely honest, they can rock their MCAs and be exceeding standards in math, reading, and science, but they never do their homework. And so according to their grades, they aren't getting any of it. And so then there's concern with that. Well, that isn't a, a their grades are not then a true reflection. Right. It's interesting. And it can go the other way, too. You can have a kid that doesn't test well or they had a really rotten day or there was a life circumstance that was going on. And so this test, they just struggled on it. And it says that they're they're not meeting anything. But then in class, they're just the one that's on and they know all the answers and all their work is done. So like I said, it's just one measure of many that we look at. It's a tool. So you don't feel it's a bad tool. You, You think it has value. Um, I think for the most part it does. Um, I don't love the amount of time that our kids have to spend doing it. Um, But I think part of it, too, is that we're testing a different test in the fall and then another test in the winter and then in the spring we're testing again, and I think that that's too much. I think that we need one, one test every spring as as a measure i'm sure kids would agree with you yeah (laughs) yeah i I was the kid who didn't test well i i did not test well at all so those always made my anxiety just spike so much so and we are finding more and more kids with anxiety and that those those testing situations are are causing some of that Mm -hmm. Um, well maybe we could ask about that what's um that's a thing now. There's more anxiety in schools than there was before, especially, um, you know, you could probably gather my politics by me using the phrase lockdown. Uh, so after the lockdown, what the um, kind of the end result seems to be more anxiety in the schools and and social issues and, and, and things that, you know, for example, my daughter's an eighth grader. Well, that's a tough time anyway mm-hmm. for kids, but the uh, the lockdown really changed that uh, to my to from my perspective, made things worse. But is the anxiety level in schools at whatever grade level worse now today than it was five years ago or when you were in school? Oh, that's a really hard question because I think um, I think we were always headed in this direction. And I think that that... I think it did two things. I think once, or one thing that it did was it um, it just made it it made it come quicker. Mm. I think it just hit it hit the ceiling quicker than if we would have just 
been status quo and not had that hiccup, that and bump what, in the road. What is it that you think was that's happened quicker? <clears throat> um, I think that an increase in anxiety was already underlying, and I think that that bump in the road just drove everybody there quicker. Okay. It was like that the trigger yeah. for that. Mm-hmm. Not to blame everything on social media, but I feel like that portion, all that negativity around social media got accelerated. Um, there's been a lot of research by psychologists just around depression and anxiety, especially among teenage girls and social media and that stuff. And you can see it just like 2012, 2013 onwards, as everyone got devices and spent more time on that. And then during the pandemic, we had more time for that. Um, you can just see like anxiety, depression go through the roof. Um, so I can't speak as an educator, but that's what I've seen just researching social media. It well, was already trending upward. Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. Well, it certainly made it worse, but as a parent, um, it's kind of, we were talking about this in our house. It's a little bit like, um, if people could read each other's minds, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I think social media in the last few years has shown, given us a taste of what that would be like because people feel comfortable saying anything, mm-hmm. you know? And so imagine, um, you know, eight, 13 year old girls, one girl does something, whatever in school. And then the other seven gathering together and it changes every day, by the way, it's not just one girl getting picked on, but it's like, who are we picking on today? Mm-hmm. But yeah, very interesting. Well, didn't the U.S. Surgeon General come out a few weeks ago and say, like, 13 is way too young for kids to be on social media? So then 11 is too, right? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I feel like it's one of these health things where it's, like, lead or smoking or something where, like, 10 or 20 years from now we might be like, yeah, that was really bad. Like, what the heck were we thinking? I, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I remember being on AOL when I was 11, and that was bad because I was just talking to strangers. Yeah. And oh my gosh. now it's just like <laughs> now, now it's worse. Now, now you're talking to people you know. Oh my gosh! Well, it's not just well. the interactions; it's like the the self image and the comparison. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I mean, we could get into that. That's a whole other episode. I I kind of want to go back to the differences between the different schooling options. Um, And kids are all wired differently, and you see this every day in your work. Um, How does that affect the way that they would learn, like specifically in a charter or public school, or even private, because you can't really individualize private either? How how do you work through that? And I know that's a loaded question, but... Well, I th- part of why I love the educational system as it is is that you have choice as a parent. And so if your kid, the way that they learn would be better in a specific charter school or just in the public school. I mean, our public schools do offer some very unique things for students mm-hmm. um, that other schools can't offer. And the same for um, – You know, there's a vein of private schools that are Montessori, and so that's a very different learning style. But you, at least we have the benefit in our area that we have a lot of really great options to send our kids to that, you know, will play into their 
the way that they learn, the way that they tick. And so, you know, not everybody has that available to them. And so Mm -hmm. in those situations, I think you being the expert and the main educator of your child, you have to play a very key role in ensuring that your kid is getting what they are in the school system that they are. So if you only have the local public school to send your kid to, you need to be involved as a parent. Mm-hmm. You need to have a relationship, a good relationship with the teacher that you can speak into providing additional opportunities for your kid to learn the best way that they are and or the best way that they learn. And so um, that would look like Man, my kid really loves hands-on stuff. Mm-hmm. And so if I know the teacher, maybe I can help them build some sensory bins for their class, or maybe I can help them do some additional projects that will inspire my kid. And teachers love that kind of help and that kind of feedback from parents other than like, man, you're not meeting the needs of my kid. Like sure. my kid's too smart and you're not challenging them. Well, they have... 20 to 30 little kids that they're trying to get to know and understand. And I know a parent of three, sometimes I have a hard time meeting the needs of my three in my household. And so as a teacher, I mean, that's just, it's a huge ask to meet each kid where they're at. And they, teachers do an amazing job of figuring out like the groups of kids that, you know, are kind of at the same level and trying to challenge and then trying to build up those that are, you know, maybe struggling in an area. And they do, but you only have so many hours in the day. Right, yeah. And on top of that, then you're dealing with sometimes behaviors. Sometimes there's unmet needs at home that a teacher is trying to overcompensate because we know that a kid does not learn if their basic needs are not being met. And so when you have kids you know, in rural places or even on the reservation up in Minnesota that they're not, their basic needs are not being met. They're coming to school hungry. They're coming to school in clothes that they've been wearing for five days. Like, you have to overcome that before learning takes place. Right. And so there's just, there really is a lot of factors that go into not only how they learn, but what's affecting their learning that's external. Sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. It is. I appreciate I appreciate the question and the insights. Um, so how about then students with diverse learning issues? And um, there's all kinds of... I, I Maybe my memory is off, but I don't remember... Uh, well, we didn't have paras when I was in school. We didn't... I, I We had one or two students that were perhaps on a certain type of medication or something so that they were able to function in school... And I think that um, it was because of seizures or things like that. And uh, I went to school, you know, for 12 years or most of 12 years with one in particular that I remember him because he stands out. He was one of the only kids that was like that. But I don't remember all the other stuff that schools are dealing with today, different learning disability issues. Uh, they're just, they must have existed, but they weren't mainstreamed in the schools. Is that correct? Is that something new in the last 15, 20 years? I'd have to do a little research on exactly what that is. But I think there were parts of that, um, students that um, didn't function at a certain level usually were put in a different type of a situation and not mainstreamed. Um, But they are mainstream now. So the 
the legal term for it is that they're supposed to be put in their least restrictive environment. So they're supposed students that struggle with a learning disability, they're supposed to be as mainstreamed as possible. So um, even kids that have like a severe medical thing, um, they the they try as much as possible to keep them in a mainstream classroom. So this might be tricky for you to answer, but the reason why I bring the, for several reasons I bring the question up, um, uh, I've got a grandson that um, has that is uh, on the spectrum, for example, and so he has certain uh, help that he gets in the school. I have other friends. One of the members of the local school board has three kids that um, have uh, uh, special assistance and paras working with them and things like that. But some of the stories I'm hearing from other parents, not these groups, are of sometimes violent situations that happen in the classroom where the teacher is literally not able to teach because a student with a particular situation that is not their fault uh, or not the parent's fault, but they're in the classroom and there, there isn't enough staffing or there's, there's some reason. Here they are in the classroom, but they don't have the resources. So the teacher, who might have 25 students, let's just make up a number, in the classroom there, but she's spending most of her time trying to keep the peace with one of them or two of them and then the rest of the kids. That's That's got to be hard. Is that a real thing or am I just hearing stories? Yeah, well, I mean, those are real stories and that is stuff that is dealt with. And I think um, part of what comes into play with that is uh, special education law um, is is a beast of its own. And so a lot of what plays into that is you have to place them in a least restrictive environment. And then, um, and it's different for every state and you have to try interventions and each school district kind of sets out this whole, um, system of how they navigate this. But, but a kid that is struggling in some area, the first step is really just to try some some boots on the ground kind of intervention things. And so a student that maybe is showing some violent tendencies, they don't just automatically remove them from their least restrictive environment. They will do six weeks of intervention, which in a school, six weeks is a long time. But they have to have tangible data that this this intervention that they're trying is working or not working. And so what's happening is we can't give assistance to students that haven't been placed on an IEP yet, which is an individual education plan. So basically these students have not necessarily gotten through the system yet. So your six weeks of intervention, and then there's like a child study team that gets together, which is composed of teachers and specialists, psychologists, and all of that. And they they have these meetings about this child and what they're seeing and what data they're collecting. And then if that intervention is working, great. Like, we've solved the problem now. This I mean, ideally, the intervention would work and the student would not have the issue and would be able to maintain their place in that classroom. But if we find that the intervention's not working, then we have to legally try a second intervention, and that's another six weeks. So now we're looking at 12 weeks of time that this student is in this classroom with these other students, possibly being violent, but the due diligence is that we have to give that time for 
that student to acclimate or for that to work. And so at the end of that, we've had two interventions. It hasn't worked. So then the team meets again, and then they make a recommendation. The recommendation would probably be, if those interventions haven't worked, that this student needs further evaluation. So then that child goes into the special ed evaluation, which is um, – you know, it's a whole bunch of, it's like psychological tests, it's an IQ test, it's, you know, there's just a whole gamut of things that they do and data that they collect. Um, and then if it's, you know, found that there's a delay or a cognitive inability or a disability or whatever, then that goes into they write an IEP. And that's when a student then is given the support that they need, like a para or um, or maybe a different environment. Wow. So all of that six weeks, 12 weeks is before they even get a para. Yep, because a para is funded by special education funds. And if we get a para before a student's on an IEP, that actually comes out of your general ed money then. So, I mean, it all ties back to money. There's not, there's not its own budget. There's not its own separate pot of money for a special education. There is. Special education funds is its own pot of money, but you can only assign it if their duty is to a special ed student. And a student is not considered special education until they are on a formal IEP. So it would be to the school's benefit to to make that happen. If a student needed it, yes. If a student needed it. And mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not suggesting I mean because this, I'm to be honest with you, the stories that I'm hearing right now, and and you know, some of them are people close to me, mm-hmm. but the stories that I'm hearing is that it happens quite often that teachers actually get hurt mm-hmm. in classroom and things like that. That that's happening, and it's actually even kept quiet. You know, that'll be something for a conversation the next episode, I suppose. But you know, why that's the case, I would think that the school would want that. They would want that process to go fast. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is is the law that they have to work within. There's like I said, special education law is kind of a beast. Um, and two, you're also playing into all your your data privacy stuff. So, like, well, it would be really great to just be like, Johnny in your little son's class is struggling with something or we're trying to work through it. Like, they can't legally do that. And so it is, it does tend to be hush-hush. And also, I mean, think about it in a class, like, if your te- if your kid's teacher gets hurt, like the kids know who did it, but you can't publicize that because it's a, a violation of data privacy and right. you know. So even though everybody knows, you don't talk about it because you could get into some legal trouble. Is that is that why it's still going on, or it because it's because of fear? I mean, is that a reason why some things like this don't get solved or aren't getting more attention in the press? Or, well, I mean, it's hard to know. Like, I don't, I'm not an expert in special ed by any means, but there are kids that struggle with things and they go through the process and they don't qualify. Right. So then, if they don't qualify, then you're as a district, your hands are tied with what to do with those students. And typically, until they make a large enough violation that you can do something legally to get them out of your school, you're stuck dealing with that. Wow. So it's like they have diverse learning abilities, but not diverse enough to get the IEP. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Yeah. And typically, you won't get an IEP for 
I mean, unless you can get like an EBD, emotionally behaviorally disturbed mm. classification um, for behavior, they typically don't then qualify for anything. Is this just in charter and public or do private schools also go through kind of the same thing? Or So the beautiful thing about a private school is you don't have to keep them. That's true. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> and parents really don't have a leg to stand on in a private school. So mm. if you're not behaving, there's the door. Sure. I mean, it affects their bottom line because that kid was bringing in tuition money, but do you want the tuition money or do you want the chaos? You know, so I don't think that they deal with that on the same level where a public school can't legally turn any student away. Sure. Um, they can't cherry pick who they want in a in a pub, in a charter school either. Like you, I mean, we. This is probably a, another big difference is that your local public school has to make room for your student if you live within the district. Mm -hmm. Now, there's things like open enrollment where I could choose to apply at a different district and send my kid there. Um, that's kind of a different thing. They can choose to take you or not. Um, but your local district that you live in, like you're entitled to a free education in that institution. A charter school is a we call them a choice school because you're choosing to send your kid to that school. And in doing so, you are choosing to choose their curriculum. So at a charter school, you can opt out of certain aspects of curriculum, but you couldn't in a, I could go to Elk River because that's my home district. And I could say, I actually don't like your entire math curriculum and I want my kid to use something else. And by that statute, I can work with you and provide my students something else. But that same statute does not apply in a charter. You okay. could opt them out of like a book. Like I really don't want my kid to, to read Moby Dick in high school. So like she's going to read something else. Like I can do that. Um, but I can't just say like I'm choosing to go to this charter school and I don't want them to do any of the math curriculum. Um, that's not a choice. Okay. It'd be like so, going to a restaurant and saying here – don't use these ingredients. I brought my own ingredients for you to. Yeah. Right, yep. Mm -hmm. And you can. <laughs> Sorry, that's a poor people. analogy. No, it's not. I know it people. I'm kind of hungry right now. I'm thinking about food. <laughs> Wait, you know people like that? Yes, I do. What? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I can't say. <laughs> because the theory is like if you're choosing to go to that school, you're choosing to. Everything yeah. about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. So. Uh, makes sense. Yeah. Oh, so I was going there with this is that charter schools, they hold lotteries for their acceptance. So mm -hmm. typically every January, February, anybody that wants to go to that school fills out an application and then they just lottery for the open seats because mm -hmm. typically a charter school has capped enrollment. Um, and so you won't necessarily get into that school, but you could. And then there's other things around like preference for that like if one of your kids gets in they can have preference to once an open seat opens in your your siblings grade that they would have preference to mm. get in same with staff get preference to once you work there for a while your kids your own kids can get in so that's that's where the difference lies like sure. you you have a seat you will always have a seat in your local district school you always will that's the law. 
where all your other options are options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you are, um, so if you're the superintendent of the local public school and the administrators and the teachers, you're also stuck with everybody. Yep. Anybody that comes through your door, you're with. And that's, I mean, that's the same perspective. That's same for charter schools as well. Like there's no preference on when they lottery, they just get what they get. Um, you can't cherry pick the ones that you let in. So, but you can at a private school to a point. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, do you feel impressed or let down uh, or are you just, um, it, it's the same as it relates to parents' involvement today. Are you impressed by how and parents how parents are involved right now, or do you wish they'd be more involved in their kids' education? So I've been at the same school now. This is my 10th year. And when I started at the school, I was a kindergarten teacher, and I had a parent volunteering in my room 90% of the time. Like they would come in like two hour blocks and volunteer and they would do crap, you know, set up crafts for me and, you know, do all kinds of projects and um, help with things. And it was great. And as time has gone, I've noticed, well, now I think our kindergarten teachers maybe have one mom once a month for two hours. Like, and I think that part of it scares me because of what our school is chartered on we our original acronym really just held to we are parents that are involved and and like the whole premise of our our building was the 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 connection between parents and teachers and everybody just working together and we've definitely seen a decline in not necessarily for lack of wanting to be involved but just an increase of both parents working. When I first started, the majority of the moms either just worked part-time or they didn't they were stay-at-home moms and they had time in their schedules to to be there and to invest that way. You're not saying that you know, and it may be. It may be that parents are less engaged now. That's I, I think that that's part of it there personally. Is part of that, yeah. But um, but you're saying to some degree it's just the way how society has changed over the decades that there's uh, there are fewer parental volunteers available. Parents don't have as much time as it stands right now. I can s- say as a parent that there's our week is busy and our nights are busy. You know, with church ministry things like that, and then trying to figure out how we're getting to the conferences, the volleyball games, that whatever. That alone is difficult. Getting homework done all that stuff, it's hard. It's really, I get it, but but you're observing a literal decline of parental involvement in some of the ways that they used to be involved to even 10 years ago. Yeah, it, it's kind of a drastic decline. And it's, and COVID exasperated it because we couldn't have anybody in the building for a long stint. And they just, it seemed like they just didn't come back after that. That's interesting because... We don't have to get into all of this in this episode, but in my mind, it seems like parents are more engaged than ever about what's happening in schools and in their kids' classrooms. But it sounds like you're saying, like, on the ground during the day, there's less parents involved. Maybe parents are just more involved at a 
we're more concerned at a higher level about what their kids are being taught and what's going on in schools. But like actual parents on the ground in the classrooms is declining. Yeah. And I would say if parents were more involved, like on the day to day stuff, I think the concern would be less. Less parental anxiety. Yeah. I totally agree mm -hmm. with that. Renee and I have had the experience, partly because of my political involvement this last year, but I wanted to, whether I won or lost, and I lost, I wanted to be more involved in the schools because I had made up my mind that I had relegated that or I'd ceded not just my authority, but my involvement to total strangers about my kids' education. And uh, so we volunteered more. So I've been involved in a lot of different things. We're hall monitors uh, once a month on Wednesday. It's a simple little thing, but those are things that I didn't do before. So when you're there and you see what's going on right before your eyes, there's a lot of aspects of it that calm you down that you go, okay, well, they're behaving like kids. You know, we're not raising um, uh, Chromebook monsters, you know, on one hand. But on the other hand, I also see the anxiety side and I see, by the way, less parental involvement. So they're always asking for volunteers. Every week we get another email saying, can we, we're trying to do this event, but we need more parents, blah, blah, blah. There's, there's just so many things that they can't do well because parents mean well. You know, they want to be involved. They want to like, you know, do as what the charter schools are supposed to be about, but they're not making themselves available for whatever reason. We are so distracted that now we're losing our kids. That's what I feel like. Yeah. I have a story that is a perfect example of, of a situation like that. So um, we had a, a small um, student flare-up issue happen, and um, all of a sudden we just start getting this. The office is just the phones are lighting up, and these parents are just – you know, they're going into this tizzy of what's going on there. And, you know, they're just upset about the situation. And there in the situation, it was fine. The, you know, life was just normal school day. Like there was a situation, but it was calm and like it was being dealt with and like it wasn't affecting anyone really. And you know, so then we have all these parents, I'm coming to get my kid right now, and I can't believe you, you know, haven't let us know. And it was, but the, the spirit mm -hmm. in the building is, is just, it's calm. Like every, it's, it's status quo. Everybody's just doing what they need to do. And the situation was under yeah. control. And, um, you know, you know, we're just getting all of these calls. And, and finally, some of the moms that work in the building, just started calling their friends from the office and saying, I'm here right now and it's fine. Like everything is good. Your kids are perfectly fine. So that was a social media moment? Kind of. And, you know, like they could probably could have put it on Facebook, but like literally they were just calling their other right. mom friends outside of the building and just saying, it's fine. And then literally people started calling back and saying, I'm good. I'm not coming to get my kid. I'm good. I'm not coming to get my kid. It's amazing. You know, and it's like we jump to these conclusions externally about situations or things that we've heard or whatever, and it just builds anxiety in right. us. Well, and that's not parental involvement, by the way. Pressing a couple buttons on a, on a mobile device is what is being um, mistaken as parental. I'm very involved. I yell at people all day long on 
<laughs> on social media. But really, it's not the same thing as volunteering to be a basketball coach, which I will never do again, and <laughs> because I was bad at it. Uh, but, uh, you know, being the hall monitor, helping out with classrooms and field trips, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, going, By the way, going to your school board meetings, people love, I, I'm telling you, most meetings you go to, there's three people in the room, there's chairs for 50 mm-hmm. at the local, but there's just a couple of people in there and people are, people pretend to be interested. Well, they don't really become interested until there's a fire lit about something mm-hmm. right? and then you don't right. have enough chairs. Um so, yeah, I mean, if you're there month in and month out and you kind of have a pulse on what's going on, when those things flare, you don't you don't join in the bonfire because you you're comfortable with I know who these leaders are, I know the way that they make decisions, and I kind of know like the backstory of of what's going on if you're involved or vice versa if you're involved and you see something that really concerns you and you're there day in day out and you volunteer and everything they're more likely to take you seriously because they know that you're vested yeah yep yep absolutely um i'm hoping for that (laughs) 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 when i when i walk in the school building once a month to volunteer i don't know i get interesting looks but i hope they're glad to see me or hope, hope that we're involved um can I can I yeah. ask something? I I know we might have touched on this before, but I'm wondering if we could just circle back and maybe all of us just talk about like the role of parents and the influence of parents on their kids. Um because I think it's easy to think about like what influence schools have on our kids and teachers, but as I step back and like really think about it and as Casey and I have just talked as parents, like I feel like there's a lot of other influences on our kids, like their friends, social media, church um, kids. Yeah, even their even their own <laughs> church <laughs> kids, right? Even their own like curiosity, like like our kids just have a curious nature, and so they might like just research things on themselves. I know I did when I was a kid. Like I was very shy, and um. So, like, I didn't feel like I could always ask my questions to my parents. Sorry, mom and dad. I probably should have. But, like, I remember, like, going to the library and, like, looking up in encyclopedias, <laughs> you know, just because it's like, well, this is kind of awkward to talk about. So that's changed my right. approach as a parent to be, um, like, man, I really need to just have conversations with my kids and just normalize things, not just have, like, the once well, okay, let's talk about sex now and, like, never talk about it again. Like, mm-hmm. we've tried to normalize having uncomfortable conversations with our kids, you know, appropriate ones, um, and then, like, make them regular. So, like, we're not forcing our kids to find information just from their friends or um, just from researching stuff online. So I don't know if we can talk more about that. I, there is a study, I think it's from Barna, that shows that it doesn't matter where your kid goes to school, it matters more the influence in the home. Yeah. (laughs) So just putting that out there, and it's so true because I see tons of homeschooled kids who have now deconstructed and they're not following God anymore, and their parents were with them day in and day out, you know? So um, the discipleship really just happen at home it's not dependent on where your kid goes but 
Yeah, and it's hard because there's conversations we've had with our daughter, like she's 12 going on 13. Like I said, I'm pretty like shy and modest and like sometimes it's hard to talk about that stuff, but like um, like you got to just break out of it as a parent. Like if you actually want to have an influence, um, you got to not be silent on that stuff. Well, and I would want to encourage parents um, to know that you could be totally prepared. I am absolutely prepared for that conversation and I've had it with some, I've got, um, I've got four kids that we raised and uh, have had you know, interesting conversations with them, but not all kids are willing to ask those questions or to be engaged in them, even if I'm starting it. So sometimes a parent can say, well, I'm ready and I'm even asking some questions, but I just get this, um, no, nothing, I'm fine, you know, whatever, you're not getting any feedback back. And that, that can be the case as well. You can be ready. And so you just need to, you need to be there and be available mm-hmm. uh, for when that golden moment happens. Um, with our youngest daughter, Olivia, I have to be very, very, very patient because she's very private, you know, about some of those things. So yeah, being open about that stuff isn't her jam. I think, too, part of it is understanding where they're at and then being willing to do all the talking. I've had numerous conversations with our oldest who she won't necessarily ask a question, but I just give her all the information and then she'll process. Mm -hmm. And then she might come back with a question or she might not. And I have to be okay with that and just know that if she, I always end the conversation with, if you have any questions, shoot me an email, you know, because she's comfortable with that maybe, or sometimes she does just ask me, but like, We've had a lot of conversations this year where I do most of the talking. It's like, I just want you to know that you might come into contact with this, and this is the situation. And if you see this, I don't want you to, whatever, I want you to come to me. And if if you see that situation with a friend, I want you to come to me with that. You mm-hmm. know. And so she doesn't necessarily, it's not like an interaction kind of thing. It's just, a, I'm going to download all this really useful information into you because you need to know it. And, but I'm here for you. Yeah. It's and good. like my mistake as a dad has been like reading her like as I'm saying this, like thinking it's not sinking in or right. she's just like, eh, dad, stop, stop, stop. But actually <laughs> there's been times where like, I don't know, something will come up and like one of our younger kids will say something and then like she'll correct them because she's had this information and as an older sister and she's not weird about it. Like I think. I think she'd be embarrassed and weird about it like I was when I was a kid, but because we've normalized it a little bit, she can talk about those things and it's not totally weird. That's good. Do we have time for one more question? Yeah, sure. My question is, is what didn't we ask you? So this is your opportunity to share. You know, I was kind of hoping, I was kind of hoping they'd ask this, or I've always wanted to talk about this. If I had a chance to have a voice uh, to talk about what it's like for an educator, I would want the world to know what. Yeah. Well, I feel like I already gave a lot of really good advice that I wanted to give, but I actually, it was good. I actually want to circle back to what you had said about as a parent that you had relegated your authority to the school system. And that's right. I just want to talk a little bit more about um, that parents really need to view themselves as the primary educator of your kid. That's awesome. And 
you hold so much authority is that first learning, like you're the one that's instilling all of those foundational blocks in, in, in their, what they're learning, but in, in how they learn too. And you can tell a difference in students that come from a home that value education versus students that don't have a value of education. And my one caveat as a kindergarten teacher, read to your kids. I could not tell you who had cloth diapers and who had disposable diapers. I could not tell you who was breastfed and who had formula fed, but I could tell you every time a kid that was read to and not read to. That really makes a huge difference in the education of your kids. But then choosing the, the books and the values that you hold as a family to read to them, that is huge. Reading good quality literature that holds the high value that you have as a family, that, that will make a world of difference in their education. And I think over time, and, and this is part of where education is struggling, families have given, they've given that away. And in giving that away, it's caused a tremendous burden on our educational system to meet all of these needs that they were never intended to meet. And I think the church plays a role in that too. But the degradation of the family over, I mean, it's been happening a long time, but it's, I mean, it's just getting, it's getting worse and worse. Like not having that solid foundation of the family is, it's, it's a detriment to the schools because they are having to meet these these emotional voids that that will a school will never be able to fill that but they will try because their focus is on a whole child and that's interesting that'll come up in part 2 because sometimes the school solutions to those emotional problems some parents don't like and they don't realize that they're probably part of the solution the parents i mean they are the building up of the family and yeah. and supporting parents and parenting and i mean it it all is interwoven and so i think the biggest thing that we can do as just as the church and as people um is just to continue to focus on building families back if we don't build our families back we're going to continue down this spiral of now the family's not meeting this need. And so how is the school going to pick up that? And the families, you know, like we shouldn't yeah. have to do that. Yeah. And you've yeah. told me too, it's like, it's not always that the school is trying to like usurp the authority of parents. It's it's almost like they're just trying to have a functioning society or community at school. And so where parents have not taught kids how to function with other children or how to manage or self-regulate then the school is just going to kind of give some some instruction. They're not going to give biblical instruction. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, and they right. can't. And they can't, yeah. yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah, and so, like, my philosophy, as I've thought about this more, is just that as Christians, we're living in Babylon, if, that, if I can use an analogy. So my expectation is not that when I send my kids out that Babylon is going to teach them Christian values, I mean, we can have a debate about what our voice and influence should be in, in the public square. Putting that aside, like, my expectation is that I need to instill those values into my children yeah. while they're listening. <laughs> 
Well, this has been my favorite part of the episode, e- even just the last 10 minutes. This has been, um, I know I heard a sound bite in all this uh, in the last few minutes. I, Casey, I really appreciate your time and your expertise in this and um, calmly helping us. All of us are parents and we have kids in, uh, in school in one, in one way or another. And um, you're helping us understand what's really happening and our role in it and how parents, uh, especially family, uh, but parents in particular um, can have a lot to do with their kids being successful in some amazing Babylon-like times. So yeah. thank you for being our guest. And yeah, I hope thank folks, you so much. Thank yeah, you for having yeah. me. I hope people will stay tuned for part two. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thinking Well. We hope that this will lead to fruitful conversations in your life. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and family, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To stay up to date with the latest and to join in the conversation surrounding faith and culture, follow us on Instagram at Thinking Well Podcast. Thinking Well is a production of Living Waters Church in Elk River, Minnesota. For more information about Living Waters, visit livingwatersmn.org. 